Well, we're headed into a new year together. And I want you to know that I'm just as excited today as I was 21 years ago when I stepped up to a little black music stand in Turkey Foot Middle School. How many of you were there? That's pretty cool. Everybody hadn't left. (laughs) Turkey Foot Middle School. And once we dismissed, I mean, this is a church that as I'm talking to them on the phone, they said they have about 80 people. What that meant is they had about 60 kids and 20 adults. So once we dismissed the kids, I was looking at like 35 adults sitting in little cafeteria chairs as I preached my first Grace Fellowship sermon. But here's something maybe you know, but if you don't know, you need to hear it. All pastors who stay 21 years don't actually keep loving the church that they're at, but it is a job. I, believe it or not, still love you. I love being the pastor here. There's not another church I want to go to. Well, thank you. I mean, even when I get letters and stuff from good places, just whatever reason, at the end of last year, I got an invitation to go to California and be the pastor there. And Vicky's like, at least pray about it. I said, I just did. No. And I don't care where it is. I'm not going because in my mind, I'm the kind of pastor. Like, I don't want to just take my sermons and start all over It's more than preaching. I've invested 21 years into a certain equipping the saints and a mindset for this church to do ministry, to impact the church. I don't want to start over. So Lord willing, I want to stay. I love growing old. I love I love seeing kids that were kids that are now getting married. Kids that were kids that are now on staff here, like Aaron Barnett leading the middle school. That is so cool. So when you stay, you get a special blessing. I actually love growing old together with you. And some of you have been here and done it with me for over two decades now. So you know, I lost all my hair here with you. I had hair when I arrived. It was wispy. It was wispy, but it was there. And I gained 20, 25 pounds over the last two decades with you. And Vicki and I together pretty much raised our five kids in this church with you. That's sweet. That's special. But maybe you know this already. Jesus did not return this past year. And we're not dead, so we're not done. God still wants to use us together as a church family for his glory to impact our community And our world. And here's what maybe you know. If you've been here a while, then you know. We didn't just stumble through these last 21 years, folks. We, from the very beginning, have been focused on a very clear mission and standing on some core values that we call big rocks that keep us from drifting and keep us from just chasing after every little hot church fad that comes down the pike. And they are numerous. But it keeps us on track. We've got some big rocks that keep us on track. And maybe you're sitting there thinking, oh, Brad, I've heard the big rocks. I know the big rocks. Why would you repeat the big rocks? Here's why. The biggest challenge for a church or any organization is not getting on the same page. It's staying on the same page year after year after. So I keep casting this vision like it's my job because it is. It's not just my job to preach through Romans. It's my job as the lead pastor to say, where are we headed? What are we doing? Are we staying on course with what God has called us to do? And God has not called every local church to do the exact same thing. There's some big general things that we share. But in particular, what is it that we believe God has called us to be all about at Grace Fellowship? So today I'm going to thump the big rocks. But to spice it up and to make it a little more memorable, 
I actually wrote a big rock Sunday song. Yeah, Brad and Janelle Spencer are not the only ones that can write songs. <laughs> new, new. I wrote a big rock Sunday song. And some of you might remember, I used to play the guitar. I was the original worship team. It was sad. And so, he's back. They never asked me anymore, so I just picked a Sunday and introduced myself. Maybe if I write a song, they'll bring me back. And so since we came through the Christmas season recently, I actually set my chart-topping song to the classic Christmas tune by John Lennon, So This Is Christmas. Don't you hate that song? I do. So I thought I would, I thought I would destroy it some more. So look at the big rocks before we move on. That's right. Because another year's over. And the new one's begun So these are the big rocks Get your little lights up, yeah The things we stand on The eight basic doctrines For the old and the young For the old and the young And so Big Rock Sunday So Big Rock Sunday Brings it back into The God we are serving and what he's called us to do. Oh, but there's more. And maybe you've heard them. I know some of you have and would like to move on. Not going to happen, but I can't let you do that. Because a new year's begun. So buckle up. So buckle your seatbelts and open your ears. It's time to remember what we're doing here. I'll do the chorus. And so Big Rock Sunday brings it back into view. The God we are serving. What he's called us to do. Key change. Let's stand together on the third verse. So God, show me this. What you want me to do. Oh, that's right. To serve my church family. And to glorify you. I know that you called me. I know that you called me.
That's what they no longer tap into. (laughs) I don't know why. I don't know what they're thinking. So for a lot of you, as we were singing that, the rocks are rolling through your head, you know, but some of you, you don't know what we're talking about. So let's talk about it. What are the big rocks? What are the core values we stand on that help us determine? Sometimes you may wonder, why don't we do that? Other churches do that. Why aren't we into this? What, what? We got some core values. So here, here's rock number one. It might seem like a no-brainer, but sadly it's not anymore. Bible. Our big rock number one is the Bible. But maybe that we're going to use it. Not just own it, use it. On Sundays, you're not wasting your time if you bring a Bible. If you carry a Bible with you, I know it's one more thing to carry with a diaper bag or whatever else. Your hands are full. You will not have wasted your time to bring a Bible because we use it. We're actually going to preach from it. There'll be some point in the service we'll say, turn with me in your Bibles to so-and-so and we're going to talk about it and we're going to read some of God's word. We sing songs that are filled with scripture. We teach our kids the Bible. They're back there going through the Bible. We've picked out a curriculum that will teach them the Bible, both Old and New Testament. Here's something that makes us different. We actually counsel, do counseling with depressed people, bad marriages, parenting situations, on and on, using the Bible. We do biblical counseling instead of psychology, and we're convinced that God's word has answers and everything that we need. Second Peter 2, 3 says, he's given us all things for life and godliness. Right here, we use the Bible, the Bible, the Bible, the Bible, because we think this has power. This, we believe it's inspired from cover to cover, Genesis to Revelation, all of it. We're still going to preach and teach it and use it. And we use this to make decisions in our church. And we actually let this be the grid through which we discern and try to decide what the culture is doing and should we. And sadly, even what the Christian culture is doing and should we. Should we jump on board with that? Should we go that way? Whether it's gender, whether it's roles in the home, whether it's discipline your kids, whether it's whatever. We're going with the Bible. And so more and more, folks, we are going to look different. And very often I even wonder why you're here. We shouldn't be big. We're one of the churches that still uses the Bible, but I'm convinced that God by his spirit in his goodness is drawing people to a church that still uses the Bible because he wants people to hear his word, not just be entertained with smokes and lights and all kinds of pithy slogans and stories. And so many churches, when I go on vacation and I visit a church, I'm shocked how they're not really using the Bible. There's an, oh, the speaker is usually just amazing and dynamic and there's all kinds of fun, cool stuff happening. But at the end of the day, it's like, I don't think we really used the Bible. Bible Bible-based. And so that means we don't just want to use it. We want you to know it. We want you to read it. We want you to get it inside of you so it impacts how you think because this will renew your mind. It changes your mind, how you think, how you see the world, how you live, So we want you to read it. Let me make a suggestion. If you've struggled to read the Bible, and I did growing up in the church, I heard read it and I would start in Genesis 1 and somewhere in Leviticus when they're tearing the hide off of red heifers and taking the kidney and setting it aside, I would bog out. Listen to me. It may not grab you, but December 31st, 2016, I finished reading through the Bible for the 10th time using the John MacArthur 
daily Bible through the Bible in a year. It works for me. It might work for you. Where he gives you two chapters of the Old Testament, a little bit of a psalm, a couple verses of Proverbs to chew on, and half a chapter of the New Testament. And if you'll stay with it, and I'm on January 8th now, so I'm in Genesis, and I'm in Matthew 1, and I'm in Psalm 4 or 5, you'll finish the Bible in a year. And I can do it in 25 to 30 minutes a day. Consider grabbing one of those this year and say, you know what, I'm going to do it. I'm going to do it. I'm going to read through the Bible. Big rock of the Bible, not just our thoughts. Because so often what we think is not what God thinks. Remember Isaiah 55 says, for my thoughts are just like your thoughts. That's what we act like. My thoughts are not your thoughts and my ways are not your ways. So I need to know what he thinks and what he says. Because most often what my natural response and default setting is, is wrong. Bible. Rock number two. Big rock number two is grace. This is a precious and glorious doctrine that we hold to here at Grace Fellowship that causes us to do ministry in two big ways. We teach that salvation, how can you get right with God? How can you be forgiven of your sins? Is by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone, plus nothing. nothing. You're saved by grace, not works. Oh, there's a mess out there. There's a mess out there and it's the natural human wisdom to think I've got to work for it. I've got to earn it. We teach salvation by grace in Jesus Christ. Oh, but there's more. There are also churches out there that are all about grace to the point that they say, you can do whatever you want because we're a grace-based church. We actually teach that the grace that saves you is the same grace that begins to empower you and work through you to change you to become more like Jesus. So we're not just about information, we're about transformation, becoming more like, is it messy? Ah, do you still fall down? Is it two steps forward and three steps back? Yes, but at the end of the day, over a decade, you ought to be able to look at your life by God's grace and say, I think he's changing me. It's ugly, it's little, there's still so much work to be done, but his grace is changing me from the inside out. That's why the Apostle Paul didn't just write verses about saving grace. Ephesians 2, 8, and 9 would be one of those. For by grace are you saved through faith, and that not of yourselves, it's the gift of God, not of works, lest anyone should boast. Same guy that also wrote 1 Corinthians 15, 10. But by the grace of God, I am what I am. And his grace towards me was not in vain, but I labored more abundantly than they all, yet not I, but the grace of God, which was with me. He's talking about living it out. He's talking about putting forth effort to lead my family differently, to avoid temptation, to renew my mind. It's work, but I do this work empowered by grace, saving grace changing grace. If I had a coin in my hand, I'd put it to you this way. We believe the biblical concept of the doctrine of grace is that it has pardon on one side. His grace will forgive you. And that same grace has power on the other side. If you don't have any power and you keep saying, but I just can't, I can't, I can't, I can't. It's who I am. You got to question whether you've ever experienced the pardon because he brings both forgiveness and enablement and power to begin to live differently. And so what this means is we're totally against legalism here. We don't want to have a list of what you have to do and here's our checklist. So we will, ex- we will receive and accept everyone who comes in here by grace. 
by grace. Don't try to clean yourself up first and then come. Come, come as you are. But here's what we believe the Bible teaches. The grace of God that meets you where you are never leaves you where you are. It begins to change you. It begins to work from the inside out. So Bible, grace, and then big rock number three, missions, missions. We are a church on the move. We're a church on the move and he's called us to actually engage our culture. You know that passage that many Christians are familiar with? Maybe once a year there's a mission Sunday and someone reads it and we all think about missionaries in other countries obeying it. Matthew 28, 18 to 20, where Jesus said, I have all authority that's been given to me in heaven and earth. Go therefore and make disciples. And we think, I'm so glad there's some people doing that. You know what it literally says in the Greek? He says, I have all authority in heaven and earth. Therefore, as you are going, There's not just certain people that are going to go. Some are going to go to other countries. But as you are going to Dixie High School, to Ryle High School, to Simon Kenton, to Beachwood, as you are going to Great American Insurance, as you are going to that playground with your kids and some other stay-at-home moms, as you are traveling for that pharmaceutical sales company, as you go, make disciples. Be salt and light. Make a difference. Missions that were... So here's the thing that I have to push all the time that I know is a possibility and a great danger to me. We used to be very unattractive. Can you imagine me leading worship? Who's gonna come for that? We're sitting in little cafeteria chairs that were scraping gum off before you got there. There's no air conditioning. You had to really love Jesus to go to this church. Now? You could be here for reasons different than that. And so, all right, we got a facility, there's ministries, there's stuff. If you are coming here just because you're looking for a safe place to sit and soak, and because we're big, you can be anonymous, we're not your church. We're not your church. We, we don't want to just huddle up on this hill We're not big business. We're not a a club. We're not a secret society. We actually exist for the people outside. We want to encourage you. I've heard the the illustration, the hospital for sinners. Great. Who wants to stay in the hospital the rest of their life, right? Most of us think I sleep terrible there. They keep pricking me. I keep getting. The goal is to get out. You come here broken and bleeding. And our desire is to build you up and to teach you and encourage you to go back out. And make it going is what it's about. And yes, there are some who've chosen to go to other countries. Thank God. Praise God. Yes. But all of us are to go. And here's why I'm so excited. This year, 2017, by God's grace, here's why we would do what we do. Because we have this big rock of missions, we push a big percentage of our resources, both in terms of money and people, outside the walls of this church. Some of our best godly people we send out. So like this year, Lord willing, we've been planning for two or three years now, planning, praying, investigating, studying, trying to figure it out. We're gonna send a team from our own church comprised of people from this church to an unengaged people group. Now you can read missions articles to find out how that's even more beyond unreached. It's a term that means Worse than unreached, unengaged. Some of our best people. So we've targeted the people group. We know where they're going. 
we're praying, and they're gonna go and try to live there, and you're not supposed to be doing what we're gonna have them do. That's why I can't give you their names or tell you the country. But why would we do this? It's big risk. It's gonna cost money because God calls us to go. We're calling it PG6, so they're gonna go. And let me show you why we would do this, that excites me, that we're not supposed to huddle up here and just take care of the people that come and make this a great place, almost like a a gym, you know, where you turn in little survey cards and let us know, what can we upgrade this year on the amenities that would make you happier? No. We're supposed to equip you to go and have people to go. Here's why. Turn with me in your Bibles to Psalm 1. Every year when I read this, my heart beats faster. And so we've already gone through Psalm 2. Sorry, I say 1. I meant 2. Psalm 2. So just a few years, a few days ago, we had Psalm 2. Listen to what it says. Here's what's so often going on in the scriptures. Look at me a minute. God gives promises And in the scriptures, he'll show you the fulfillment of that promise yet to be fulfilled. But but it's for sure. And then we live in the in-between and we have the privilege of closing the gap. Missions is nothing more than closing the gap between God's promises and the fulfillment of those promises. But oh, by the way, he actually uses real people like you and me to get it done. It's not, well, because he promised it and we see it's going to happen, we don't need to do anything. We just get to get in on what God's doing because it's going to happen. And he'll either use you and me or he'll use somebody else. Look at this promise in Psalm 2. Why do the nations rage and the people plot a vain thing? This is God talking. God the Father. The kings of the earth set themselves and the rulers take counsel together against the Lord and against his anointed. His anointed is Jesus saying... Let us break their bonds in pieces and cast away their cords from us. He who sits, oh, I love this. Is God a God of love? Yes, he is, but watch this also. And I like it. He who sits in the heavens shall laugh. The Lord shall hold them in derision. The word derision means to laugh contemptuously and mock and scorn. God of the heavens scorns little earthly leaders that say, you're not coming in here. This is a closed country. This is a communist country. Even the leaders in this country that keep trying to wipe out religion and freedom and Christianity and the gospel. News alert. The God of the heavens, while Christians may run around scared saying, what's going to happen? What's going to happen? Our God laughs and says, not going to happen. I'm going to do what I said I'm going to do. Who do you think you are? You can't stop me. I like a laughing God. Then he shall speak to them in his wrath and distress them in his deep displeasure. Yet I have set my king. This is God the Father talking about Jesus. I've set my king on my holy hill of Zion. I will declare the decree. The Lord has said to me, you are my son. Today I've begotten you. Ask of me and I'll give you the nations for your inheritance and the ends of the earth for your possession. God the Father has given the nations to his son as his inheritance and possession. There's the promise. There's the promise. So look at the fulfillment. Jump to Revelation 7. So every year as I read through my Bible, I get stirred by Psalm 2. No matter how bad the news is, no matter what's going on in nations, no matter who's in positions of power, I get the encouragement of God scorning them in derision from the heavens when they say, we're going to throw off his bonds, break his shackles. Who does he think he is? Oh, he's God. And then I get the encouragement of Revelation 7 every year when we close it out in December that I see this. 
Revelation 7, beginning of verse 9. And after these things I looked, and behold, a great multitude which no one could number. Now look at me a minute. Our media continues to harp and try to convince us there's about five people left that believe in Christianity. And it's dying out. It's dying out. Just give us one more generation. It'll be gone. One more generation will be gone. News alert. Christianity isn't going anywhere. God's word says, and it's going to be just, again, don't hear me saying that everybody should have voted for Trump. But listen to this. Just the way our world was so shocked. What? What? He won? That's going to be the world standing there saying, what? There were this many Christians still? You got to be kidding me. A multitude that no one could number of all the bloggers and all the writers and all the media and all the TV anchors who said there's nobody that believes this. News alert. There will be people from every nation, tribe, tongue, and language that can't even be numbered saying, our God sits on the throne. Praise and glory and honor to him and to the Lamb. They're going to be shocked. You're kidding me. What looks so small? What looks so weak? What looked like they didn't have enough resources? They didn't have all the stuff that we have to get it done. Yeah, it's because God was behind it from the very beginning. And he said it. And what God says, he does. A multitude which no one could number of how many nations? Every or all. Oh, Oh, that's why you would go to an unengaged people group and no, you're not wasting your time. Are we wasting our time? What if no one here is going to believe? All nations, tribes, peoples, tongues, standing before the throne, before the Lamb, clothed with white robes, with palm branches in their hands, and crying out with a loud voice saying, Salvation belongs to our God who sits on the throne and to the Lamb. What a day it will be. But in the meantime, we get to be a part of closing that gap between God's promise and giving his son the nations and seeing it come to pass and being there. That's why we do missions. That's why we go. That's why I speak to people at the gym or people on an airplane or people in my neighborhood. There are people, folks, that are going to believe. There are people ready to believe. There are people ready to listen. And there are people that are going to push back and be ugly and condemn you and mock you. And later, God's going to save them anyway. So don't base it on the response you get right there. Just as unto the Lord. God hasn't called you to make anything happen. God's called you to spread this good news. And God is going to see that it happens. We get to get in on what This past week, I read a newsletter from one of our missionaries that I do believe is my favorite missionary newsletter I've ever read. I just about came out of my chair there in my living room. The Coliches, Kim and Annie Colich, Kim's a guy. Kim and Annie Colich were already our missionaries when I arrived at Turkey Foot in 1995. They have been giving their lives for over 20 years now, canoeing their way into some remote place that has no electricity, no running water, nothing to the Tommy people. Why? Because of Psalm 2 and because of Revelation 7 to translate the Bible into the language of the Tommy people. And get this, it's taken a while 
As I read it, the Gospel of John has been translated. The book of Acts has been translated. Ephesians has been translated. Psalms has been translated. And their newsletter was saying, revival has broken out as a Tommy man who believes, who's been helping with the translation, read the Gospel of John. It said they wept, they danced, they cried out and said, God has come to us, has spoken to us There's hope for us. There's living water for us. There's been revival. Men who are beating their wives. They have the same problems we do. In a hut, but nevertheless. Beating and abusing alcohol and living angry have been transformed. There are men in the village, they said. Wives that are saying, he's like a different man. His face looks different. His countenance looks different. And it was all because of the reading of the gospel of John. So now there will be Tommy people standing before the throne... And before the lamb. But listen, we got to be a part of that as we gave money to send the coaches and as we've prayed for them. This is why we do missions. This is what it's about. This is what God has promised. Big rock number four. And this is different. Equipping every believer for ministry. The reason, this may not, you may not know this, but the reason that our staff and our budget is what it is. Like we have about a $4 million budget, but 47% of that budget goes to SWB, salary, wages, benefits. You might think, what? Almost half? You know what the national average is? 60 to 65%. Why? They just have to staff it up and hire someone to do everything. Because most churches, you watch, cheer us on, give some money, we'll get it done. We actually believe God has called us in Ephesians 4, 11, and 12 that as your pastor teacher, it says God has given some pastor teachers for the equipping of the saints, for the work of ministry, for the building up of the body. From the very beginning, some of you are sitting here, from the very beginning, the elders said to me, it's what I wanted to hear. Brad, we don't want a superstar. We don't want someone to come in and take over and do it all. We're looking for an equipper, coach, pastor who will keep showing us how to do ministry. Lead the way, please, Brad, but equip us. And I was saying, I'm looking for a group of people that want to do Ephesians 4, 11, and 12 and be equipped. Yay! Even though there's only 35 of them. Yay! And we've stayed on track with that. That's why we do a fall counseling discipleship training conference to train you how to use your Bible. That's why we say all the time, wouldn't you like to know how to use your Bible to help a real person with a real problem? We want you to know. We, we don't want you to just hand out my business cards and Peter's business cards and others and say, oh, call my pastor. He's great. Meet with him. They don't want to meet with us. They don't know us. They just had a conversation with you at the playground and shared that they're depressed. They just had a conversation with you at work and said their son tried to commit suicide over the weekend. What if you knew how to give hope and build involvement and connect with them and use the scriptures to help them? What might God do? Well, we're not perfect, but we've seen some of what God might do. And we're gonna stay on track with that. Our job is to equip you To do ministry. That's again why I said, if you're looking for a safe place to be anonymous and sit and soak, roll on out because we're going to drive you nuts. My job is to equip you. That's why we try to get you in a small group so you can grow and change and say, be able to do ministry, equipping every believer to do ministry. Big rock. Number five, prayer. 
Every church would have prayer written somewhere on its, in, on its, on its written stuff, documents. But I'm telling you what, we believe in the power of prayer. Now, some of you, you're pushing back right now because I get it. Sometimes people say, does our church pray? Is it, you know why you're saying that? Because you're not in a small group. Ouch. You wonder why we don't pray, pray here. Look at us. This would not be a great prayer meeting. You can't hear. Only a few people are going to pray in front of a group this big. We pray in our small groups. Small group is not synonymous with in-depth Bible study. Oh, if I get in a small group, it'll be a two-hour Bible study. It's not. We save 45 to 60 minutes to pray. Many of our small groups divide men and women so it's even smaller. And you can really share. And the men are praying with each other. Praying for situations at work. Praying for lost children. Praying for finances. Praying to resist temptation. And the ladies are upstairs praying We pray. It's why we even still try to set aside a couple Sundays a year like we did last Sunday for a concert of prayer and praise. To pray corporately as a church family and to cry out to God. It's why I, listen, when I came here 1995, December, in my Taurus station wagon, I said, you know what? I would love to see what God might do if I actually really prayed surveys show that pastors pray three to five minutes a day is that not pathetic three to five minutes a day i in my basement bedroom started praying an hour to an hour and a half a day crying out to god i mean crying out to god for everything the budget people to play on their worship team counseling breakthroughs lost men to get saved Started praying through the church directory. And by God's grace, 21 years later, I am still doing it. Still doing it. Not saying, oh, well, we got, here's the three B's that keep pastors from praying because they're relying on it. Buildings, budgets, butts. We got people, we got money, we got buildings. Let's just get it done that way. Oh, I, uh uh-uh, I'm not going there. And that's why I take days of prayer and fasting. I'd put six days on the calendar where I'd go away from and pray from eight in the morning to four in the afternoon, crying out to God for lost people to be saved, for God to use us for his glory, for God to make our church different, for God to change lives, for his word to run and be glorified every time I preached it and when we teach it to our kids, for God to work in power. Because he said, apart from me, you can do what? You know what I think about the American church? The American church, more than other countries, because they don't have as many resources. The American church, on a regular basis, puts on display what people can do without God. Can you get a crowd without God? Can you have amazing glossy brochures and all kinds of stuff going on? Oh, yeah. We long for changed lives breakthroughs that is only an answer to prayer and so we pray and here's an exciting thing listen to this and this is not just true of me this could be true of you i sat at my kitchen table one saturday and i said you know what i'm just going to set myself up a little black notebook and i'm going to write down things that i'm praying so i don't forget that's mainly why i did it i didn't want to forget you say you're going to pray but you end up praying the same thing every day and it gets boring so i thought i'm going to divide it up i'm going to pray I'm going to pray for the specific ministries and write it all down. I'm going to pray for lost people. I've got a section on lost people. 
I'm going to pray for my marriage, different things every day. I'm going to pray for my kids, different things every day. I set up sections in a simple little black notebook that has now turned into five black notebooks because here's what I didn't anticipate and I didn't even have in mind. I don't want to tear the old pages out. You know why? You know what I have in my hands here? A record of God's faithfulness. What do we do? We tend to obsess over the latest, greatest, terrifying trial and problem and forget the last thing God did. Some of you are in here. Some of you were lost. Some of you, your wife was in my small group. I'm looking at you. And you're just asking for a men's basketball league. Not going to happen. But I prayed for you to get saved and to have a spiritual appetite and to be alive And now I've got men who were lost that are leading small groups that are mentoring people. I've got counseling breakthroughs, people that desperately needed counseling that are now doing counseling. I prayed for everything. I prayed for drummers. Yes, drummers. God will hear that. I prayed for a keyboard player right here in this notebook. You could find a page. I mean, obviously I put on display, right? Me and my guitar. That's that's pretty ugly. So I'm leading worship with my guitar and a guy who's playing the conga drums with his shirt unbuttoned to his belly button. We talked to him multiple times. Please don't do that. You're on stage. Big battle. And then a, I mean, hair. No, 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 no. And a teenager who said, I've never played the bass before, but I'll take lessons. We got him. Boom, boom, boom. We got Harry Conga player. And we got me. And I knew enough to know that, oh my goodness, a keyboard player could at least cover a multitude of sins. We need keyboard. And I wrote it down. There's a page where I wrote it down and it has a check mark now. Because listen, the leader we have now, the full-time worship director, Brad Spence, moved here as a pilot, calm air pilot, came to my small group. At the end of the first night in small group, I'm just chatting it up and said, hey, you want to see the church office? He said, sure. We walked downstairs. We walked into the bedroom that was filled with bookcases and he turned to the right and said, oh, I have that book. And it was a big, fat music theory book. I said, why do you have that? He said, because I'm actually a music major from Messiah College. I said, what instrument do you play? He said, keyboard. I said, you're an answer to prayer. I didn't ask him if he wanted to. But it gets better. Then he says to me, you know what? My parents said if I joined a church that needed a keyboard player, they would buy the first keyboard. You guys, I could stand here all day long and tell you one after the next, after the next. Every year, every year, I don't assume this. I don't presume this. Every year I cry out to God, oh God, provide money through the offerings. You know how scary that is? You don't have to give. The boxes are on the back. You have to really want to give. We don't even pass a plate and make you feel stupid. You just sit there like, huh. So that you have to throw empty envelopes in there. We don't do that. It's a box in the back. You got to want to give. And yet you do. People do. First year, the budget was 156000 I've got that page. And it has a red check mark where it says $329,000. And I have cried out to God every year. Last year, the budget was $3.6 million. You know what was given? 4.3. Every year, the offerings have exceeded the budget for 21 years. Thank you, Lord. Now, I don't say that so that those of you that are giving can say, well, let's pull back. 
And those that you don't give at all are saying, obviously they don't need us. Please don't do that. But what? It feeds my faith, right? And so that's why at the end of this last year in December, we took $500,000 because 700,000 more than, than our budget was came in. And we put it right on the principle of our mortgage on all these facilities. And we have another 500,000. We're gonna make sure all is well this year. And we're gonna do it again this year. And we will be debt free by the end of 2017. But folks, I've prayed, I've fasted and prayed, and others have. We believe in prayer. Big rock of prayer. Not just let's see what we can do. Let's see what God can do through us. Big rock. Oh, oh, and let me mention a couple resources. If you're saying, oh man, I do need to pray more. You got any suggestions? Two of my favorite resources. A Praying Life by Paul Miller. My very favorite book on prayer. And it doesn't make you feel guilty. Does not. So many books on prayer, you'll read them and they talk about Martin Luther who got up at 4 a.m. and prayed till 8. Okay, I'm done. That's not encouraging. It doesn't talk that way. This is a guy who struggles, a guy who has a handicapped daughter, a guy who has distracted. It is the most encouraging, make me want to pray, I can do this prayer book I've ever read. Ever. When I gave it out to the staff a couple years ago, it transformed some of their lives. I see some nods now. Get it. A praying life. I know some of you that have been really helped by Donald Whitney when he taught here some years ago. He did a workshop on praying the Bible. What if you, after you read your Bible, just knew how to take the scriptures and pray it? And that's your prayer time. So many of you said, oh my goodness, that changed my prayer life. Well, now he has it in a little book. And it's a little book, praying the Bible. Consider those two resources as you head into a new year of, God, I do want to pray. I want to pray. See what you could do in and through my family. Rock number six, small groups. And I know that word's not in the Bible, but it's a means to accomplish what is in the Bible. You know what's in the Bible? That believers are supposed to be together at close range, not just a setting like this. It's too big. Some of the best stuff that we're supposed to be able to do with each other as believers can only happen in a smaller setting. We believe that believers change best at close range with other believers. Why? Because 1 Peter chapter 4, verse 10 says that every believer is a steward of the manifold grace of God. Christians have grace. There's grace in them. And you're going to be helped by being close to other believers. And oh, by the way, if you say you don't need it, and you do, you also have a gift or gifts and grace that somebody else sitting there just might need. Close range. That's why we push small groups. We want you in a small group. We don't want you to just say, oh, I love the preaching. I love the singing. And will it cost you? Is it inconvenient to be in a small group? Big yes. Yes, it's inconvenient. None of us are sitting around saying, I got all this extra time and I got five nights free. Maybe I'll just stick a small group on one of those. No, we're busy and your jobs are demanding and there's sports and there's stuff. It will cost you, but it's worth it just like deciding to read your Bible. You're gonna have to turn off blacklist and miss an episode to do that. Praying, you're gonna have to set your alarm earlier. To, whatever I've mentioned today will cost you to do it, but it's worth it. Consider getting in a small group, believers at close range. Big rock, number seven, God-focused worship. And this might explain some things to some of you. You say, why don't we have a choir? Why aren't there solos? I'm not saying it's a sin, but by design, 
We believe that that so easily becomes entertainment and you just watch some of the best people with the best voices sing a song or a choir that's worked forever on a piece. We want you to come and corporately worship, not watch people worship, but the people that up here, we want them to lead you in worship. And many times people say, well, I don't know the songs that we sing. If you keep coming, you will. But so many times you're wanting those songs that are on the radio. Listen, they're not all bad, but many times the songs even on the Christian radio, the lyrics are pathetic. The depth and the theology is shallow. We try to sing God-focused songs that make much of God. His wrath being turned back. Us being adopted. Our Savior, Jesus, God's grace, the cross, resurrection, being made alive. If you think about it, our songs teach Good doctrine as you sing it. There's a reason God said sing. As you sing truth. And it's rooted in scripture. It changes you. It, change, it can reorient you. Good God focused worship is like a wake up call. It's like snapping some smelling salts. And you've gotten off track. And your thinking is screwed up. And your emotions are raging. Did you know you can sing your way into a new feeling. And a new attitude. By singing truth. By singing truth. Oh, it's refreshing when you come together. So we try to make it God-focused worship. And that's one of the things that I appreciate about Brad Spence. He's not an all-star. Notice he's never up here in skinny, tight jeans doing anything. Please no. Notice our guitar players. We try to have good people, but they never just have some long solo. Making faces. What are we supposed to do during that, Right? We're here to worship. So we, we don't have big interludes like that. It's not all about them. They are here to stir you to worship our great God. And it changes your mindset. It reorients you. Big rock number eight, the sovereignty of God. We, this is a cornerstone of our church. And if you stick around, you'll hear how it bleeds over into our worship, the way we sing about God in the preaching. If you preach the Bible, and we do, the sovereignty of God is all through the Bible. And so it's just going to come up. This great doctrine is life-changing regarding counseling and hard things that might have happened to you. But we believe that the Bible actually teaches that every single thing that comes into your life as a child of God is father-filtered. It came through his hands first with purpose and design. Now, and what I'm saying is it may have been something horrible and hard and painful, but your pain has a purpose. It's not random. It didn't just happen. Romans 8, 28 and 29 says, God causes all things to work together for good to those who love God, to those who are the called according to his purpose. Now, here's where we struggle. He's going to define good for us next. You say, well, that, that wasn't, nothing about that was good for me, Brad. For those whom he has called, he predestined to be conformed to the image of his son. Would you not have to agree, folks? Some of the times you grow the most are in hard times, not easy, great times. He's sovereign. Over all, over all. That's a life-changing doctrine that we stand on here that changes how we think, how we talk, how we counsel, how we preach, how we sing. But now, where do you come in? That's what we're going to talk about for the next two weeks. These big rocks, that's just a clever illustration. And our mission of, of gathering together to worship. 
growing together to become more like Christ and going together to reach the tri-state in the world, it's just a, a cute little slogan. Unless real people like you embrace it and are willing to serve and sacrifice to help us live it out. I can cast the vision, but I can't do it all. And the staff can't do it all. It's gonna take real people to embrace it and live it out. And so in the next two weeks, we're gonna dig into three of my favorite chapters. And all I wanna do today is just introduce it. So turn with me to 2 Corinthians chapter two. 2 Corinthians chapter two. It's 2 Corinthians chapter three, four, and five that we're gonna dig into, but I wanna catch the end of two and lead into it with you. Oh, listen to this. As you think, well, could God use me? I feel so inadequate. I feel so unprepared. I feel so weak. I, I'm still such a mess myself. Okay, watch this, 2 Corinthians 2, 14. Now, thanks be to God who always leads us. He doesn't hurt us. He doesn't shout from above. He leads. Who always leads us in his triumph in Christ. He has the power. He has the victory. He has the resources. And manifests through us the sweet aroma of the knowledge of Christ in every place. Folks, giftedness is not what changes lives. The sweet aroma of the knowledge of Christ at Great American Insurance, in that pharmaceutical sales company, in tire discounters, on that construction site, at that middle school, at that high school, at that college campus. When you go there, God intends to use you and he leads you. He was there before you got there. God doesn't hang out in church buildings and wait till next Sunday for you to come back. He is where you are and he is leading you and he has power and he has resources and he wants to manifest the sweet aroma of the knowledge of Christ through each one of us. But I know you're probably feeling the same thing that I so often feel. So jump to chapter three and look at verses five and six. Not that we are sufficient of ourselves to think of anything as being from ourselves, but our sufficiency is from God who made us sufficient as ministers of the new covenant. Not of the letter, For the letter kills, but the spirit gives life. Guess who has the spirit of the living, risen Jesus Christ living in them? Yes, you don't have to go to Bible college for that or seminary. You, you, so you've got a source of life. You've got no power, you've got no life, but he who does lives in you and he wants to manifest the sweet aroma of the knowledge of Christ through you. Those verses... And these chapters I want to dig into in the next two weeks saved my life and kept me in ministry. I know I try to tell you all the time, I I know I come across, maybe you think, oh, I bet he never struggles. I bet he's never been discouraged. He's so confident. That's all a lie. I'm standing before you because of a work of God that he has to keep doing and because of his word. I was sitting in my senior pastor's office in Columbia, South Carolina, crying not metaphorically, literally sobbing, saying, I can't do it. I can't do it. It's too much. It's too hard. Everything's so broken. I don't know what I'm doing. It doesn't seem like it makes a difference. Maybe I'm not gifted for ministry. Five years into ministry, I was ready to quit. I said, this is so hard. I can't do 
do it. I feel underprepared, overwhelmed, inadequate, insufficient. And that senior pastor saved my life and kept me in ministry by being godly enough and wise enough that he didn't just give me a pep talk. He said, oh, Brad, you are gifted for ministry. But I would direct you to 2 Corinthians 3, 4, and 5. And I would encourage you to memorize those chapters. I did. And I keep going back. It changed me and gave me hope. And I saw, oh, we don't have anything. And we constantly feel overwhelmed and inadequate. And he delights to work through that because it's got to be by his spirit anyway. Not the law, not list, not legalism, not pressing on the outside of people. That he is pleased by his spirit to work through us on a heart level in other people and he can do more than you could ever imagine as you keep showing up trembling in your weakness. Next two weeks, I'm gonna unpack some more of that so that you would have that same experience to say, okay, God, you just might be willing to use me. I feel so inadequate. I feel I'm still such a mess. My motives are still so mixed. I'm still fighting my own sin. Welcome to the club. It's actually those of you sitting there that are saying, yeah, yeah, I got it all. I am so gifted. Please use me. Please shut up and step aside. We're looking for the, I mean, who did God use, right? Remember Gideon? Remember that story? He's down in a wine press threshing wheat. That's not where you thresh wheat. News alert. You need to be up on the ground where the wind is blowing so it'll separate. He's just throwing his wheat in the air and it's landing back down still mixed with the chaff. Why? Because he's so scared of the Midianites and the angel of the Lord shouts down there, Oh, Gideon, man of valor! He's like, I don't see anybody else here, but you can't be talking to me. That's who God chooses. Fearful, weak, a sense of inadequacy. I can't do it, but I think you're calling me. Some of you, God wants to use you to teach children, to lead a small group, to learn how to counsel someone with the Bible, to lead a young life group or open your home, to meet with pregnant young ladies through New Hope Center. On and on I could go. He wants to use you even though you say, I might mess somebody up and I don't think I'm that gifted and I. Perfect. Perfect. What might God do if we prayed? And if we said, here am I, send me, I'm scared, use me. Oh God, thank you for your word. Thank you for the gospel. Thank you for your calling on our lives. Thank you that you started Grace Fellowship. This is your work. This is your effort. This is the fruits of your labor, your design. And God, we pray that you just continue to use us for your glory, by your grace and for your glory to impact our backyard as well as outside the borders of the United States. Do more than we could ever fathom. We pray in Jesus' name, amen.